This is the full interview from a segment from the Overdrive radio and podcast program. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. We reported in our news the passing of motor racing commentator Murray Walker. He had a good run. He was 97 years old. He did his research before an event, but his stock in trade was his unbounded enthusiasm. He was a motor racing fan first and not a self-promoting expert. Australian motoring journalist David Berthon knew him well, and David joins us now with his reminiscences. David, thank you very much for your time. No, good afternoon, David. How did you meet Murray Walker? Well, look, it's quite a <laughs> quite a long, protracted story. In 1980, um, the family and myself, we took our 1910 Italian scat to England to go in the Golden Jubilee Rally of the Veteran Car Club. And um, following that event, I'd arranged to put the car on display at Britain's National Motor Museum uh, while we toured around Europe for about another two months. And um, in that time, I got to know Lord Montague very well. And so um, during that period, and with Michael Weir, the curator of the National Motor Museum, um, I arranged in the next following few years to bring out some of the museum's quite early historic cars. The first car I brought in for a six-month tour was Lord Montague's 1899 Daimler, which was the first British racing car to race on the continent in the Paris to Ostend race of 1899. Um, and then the following years, I brought in two land speed cars, the, the wonderful Golden Arrow, um, that Sir Henry Seagrove broke the land speed record at Daytona Beach in 1930. And then I brought in Donald Campbell's Bluebird, uh, for 12 months in 1986. So uh, I had quite an association with the National Motor Museum, and so Lord Montague invited my wife and I to the opening of a very special exhibit at the National Motor Museum called Wheels, which was a oh, it was a bit of a Disneyland-type um, runway uh, exercise where you know, he got in a little car and took you through the ages of motoring. Uh, it was a wonderful thing, and it was to be opened by Prince Charles. So uh, we arrived there in, where was it, early 19, it was probably 85 when I did this. Uh, we, we were sitting, waiting for Prince Charles to arrive, uh, the selected guests in the National Motor Museum. It was a beautiful building. And um, I hadn't realised it, but there was a briefcase beside, I, I was on the end of a row, and there was a briefcase on the end of a row. And um, a plainclothes detective came up to me from Scotland Yard and said, excuse me, sir, introduced himself, said, do you own a suitcase? And I said, no. So just before this, of course, the royal family had had a lot of trouble. You might remember, I think it was um, the Queen's cousin. Lord Mountbatten. Lord Mountbatten in Ireland by the IRA. And I was very worried about bombs. And so because nobody owned this, this suitcase or briefcase, they decided to evacuate the museum before Prince Charles came in. And um, we walked outside and this very nice gentleman smiled at me and it was Murray Walker. I introduced myself to him and he introduced himself and we became uh, quite comfortable in talking for the next half hour while I determined what this briefcase was doing. And, of course, Murray's father had been a prominent motorcycle racer also a broadcaster and journalist. In fact, Murray worked with him at the BBC at one time, um, commentating on motorcycle racing. 
And um, so the Graham Walker collection was upstairs, a special section of the National Museum. So Murray said, oh, he said, I'm looking forward, so looking forward to my first visit to Australia to the Adelaide Grand Prix in November. And I said, oh, gosh, I said, are you only going to Adelaide? He said, yes. I said, would you be prepared to come into Sydney to do some PR exercises for me? We'd love to have you as a guest speaker at Sydney Motor Show and the like. He said, I would absolutely be delighted with that. He said, I'd love to see Sydney. He said, I'm very promotionally minded. He was an advertising executive with, um, I think, a company called DDB Needham, DDB Needham, um, Doyle Dane Burbank, I think that stood for. And he'd made uh, quite a name for himself in developing a couple of jingles, one for a canary. At that time, in the 60s and 70s, canaries were all a go. Everyone had a canary. And there was a, a there was birdseed called Trill, and Murray Murray um, wrote and produced a a, a, um, a commercial for Trill birdseed, which really took off and made him famous. I think the expression was Trill makes budgies bounce with health. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, everybody, you know, everybody had budgies in canaries at that time, even in Australia. He would have been comfortable in any of those, those environments, would he, with Prince Charles or at the motor show? Was he comfortable in, in any environment? Oh, absolute. An absolute delight to deal with. A true English gentleman in every respect. I had dinner with him a number of times at his favourite Red Lion Hotel in, or pub, if you like, in England. He was just an absolute delight to chat with. He uh, effervescent and an absolute power of knowledge on anything to do with motoring, particularly motorcycle racing, uh, through his association with his dad. But, um, you know, I put to him a number of things would he be prepared to do, and I brought him into Sydney three times before the Adelaide Grand Prix in 85, 86 and 87. And um, the second and third time, I think, he, we, we got Jaguar to sponsor it, a Jaguar dinner. Then he did an Alfa Romeo dinner. Um, I think it was might have even been four times I brought him in, but he was so easy to look. All he wanted was obviously he wanted a fee, but also he said, "Look, I just like a nice hotel room, and if you can get my um, washing and ironing done, I'll be a happy man." <laughs> and anything you asked him, uh, like you'd introduce him to people, and he'd talk on any subject. You know, it was just terrific. It's a case where he wasn't in any way uh, pretentious. I mean, those who don't know him particularly well, might mention some of his, well, you call them gaffes. But, I mean, even his title of his autobiography was, unless I am completely mistaken, he used to say things like, he's going well, he should win, and then the guy would crash. So the comment I love that Murray Walker made was, I don't make mistakes, I make prophecies which immediately turn out to be wrong. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he didn't try and, and bluff his way through anything. Any Anyone who's commentated, I've done a little bit, it's not easy work. And he had such enthusiasm, such desire to describe the circumstances as they were coming. Occasionally he said things that might not have, uh, you know, in retrospect, if you had have had a time, half an hour to write it, you might have done it more succinctly and a bit more uh, without a stumble. A lot of people suggested that he made a lot of errors at times, probably fact, motorsport fact. The thing was that the overriding thing that was impressive about him was his passion, mm. his enthusiasm, his high-octane high style of commentary. I mean, that really made Formula One interesting. And I, personally, I think he retired in 2001 
And I don't think Formula One has been the same since. Um, you know, he he gave it a certain element of of uh, power and uh, an enthusiasm that's not there today. And um, you know, also I personally think that Formula One cars today make it look so easy. Uh, back in the back in the eighties, you know, there was still a lot of sliding and what have you going on. There was downforce, but you know, the cars were a lot more active on the track than you see today. Mm. And, uh, you know, but you know, my favourite quote of his was, "The lead car is unique, except for the one behind it, which is identical." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David, I certainly laugh with him rather than at him because it is, as as we both know, I think that any commentating requires and often uh, some ad libs and and situations that it's hard to be as articulate as you want to be. Uh, I think was it a time too, or that he made it that Formula One wasn't such a mechanistic, pretentious environment. There was a bit of you know daring do, a little bit less, so much money involved in it that it's now become. Yeah. If you don't do it my way, well, it's not going to go ahead. It's very manicured today, you know. Very manicured. And, uh, you know, he had the ability to mix with the rich and famous. He, look, he, you know, he, mixed, he talked about Bernie Ecclestone. He talked about all the greats, the Jackie Stewart. All those guys, he, he was able to sit down and talk on very level. But then he could come and talk to somebody like myself <laughs> and we'd go and have dinner. And he was equally as comfortable there. He was just a great conversationalist. As I said earlier, a really true gentleman, very knew his place, was never never outspoken or bold or, or a smarty. You know, he was mm. just, just himself, Murray Walker. Toyota brought him out in 2003, at which time he'd written his autobiography, and Toyota had a function down at Darling Harbour. And I hadn't seen him since the... Oh, I think I probably hadn't seen him for 10 years. And I bowled in. And he immediately stood up and put his hand out and said, David, how lovely to see you. He said, I'm so happy to be back in Sydney. He absolutely loved Sydney. He thought it was the most wonderful place. He loved Australia. And that came through. And as he said in his autobiography, which I only refreshed myself on when he passed away last week, he made the statement that the Australian Grand Prix, in his opinion, was the best in the world. So... You know, he was a bloke who could have, who could make that assessment. You know, he really knew what he was talking about. Well, there wasn't the pretentiousness that can happen. You know, we're a bit of uh, out in the colonies. Let's throw on a good turn. That's right. He was made most welcome too, wherever he went. Everybody, because of his effervescent nature, mm. he was made welcome. You know, in in in, in parties. Uh, you know, with with uh, car enthusiasts or just people who, you know, bowl up to him in the street and put their head out and shake his hands, you know. He loved that. He really loved that sort of notoriety. You said he worked in advertising. I believe when he was working with the company, they uh, created, they had Mars as their one of their clients and they created the slogan, a Mars a day helps you work, rest and play. I really respect Walker because he repeat, repeatedly denied that the attribution of the slogan to himself. He said it was a team effort. Yeah, yeah. Now, how many people would stretch the truth? No. He didn't have to. People loved him for what he was. Yeah, that's right. He was so so proud of his, his father's motorcycle collection and the fact that the Graham Walker collection is very much part of Britain's National Motor Museum. Hmm. And, uh, and, of course, his father 
was a director with Lord Montague in the original Montague Motor Museum that was formed back in about 1956, remember me? Uh, yeah, 56. So... His father had a very distinguished motorcycle career, and um, you know, you're just looking at between 1920 and 1934, the number of TTs that he won uh, was quite staggering. TTs are for the very brave. Yeah, and he he rode many times in the Isle of Man TT, and um, he actually won the light lightweight 250cc class in 1931, and that was sort of. He finished racing in 34, 1934, so um, it was towards the end of his career. But he, he basically rode Norton, Sunbeams and Rudgers and um, a couple of old motorcycle names there. And um, But he was a director of the Montague Motor Museum, so he had a very good association with Lord Montague. And I, in the 80s, I spent a lot of time um, in Britain and also at the museum and negotiated a number of... Um, exhibits that I brought out here from there. Lord Montague is, of course, associated with the Goodwood uh, events that uh, occur, which are famous for getting together old uh, cars. I've been to the Revival. It's a lovely event where you dress in period costume. Yes. But the other thing about Murray, and in terms of working with people, he worked as a double act for quite some time with James Hunt and then later with uh, Martin Brundle. But, you know, with James Hunt, this was a time when they had only one microphone. Yeah. Now, they didn't get on immediately, but they kept going at it and ended up with a great friendship. I think that's a, an example of tolerance and skill in when uh, the broadcasting wasn't nearly as uh, money-rich as it was is now. Hunt, of course, was a personality in himself. <laughs> I mean, he was a terrible um, womanizer. In fact, I, I always think back to the first 1985 Adelaide Grand Prix, which was rather special, uh, apart from the fact that an F111 did a tail stand down the main straight before the race. <laughs> the guy came down so low, David, it was amazing. My wife and I were in the stand on the start-finish line, and to see this this plane, you know, a couple of hundred feet off the deck, with on standing on its tail with the afterburners on, it shattered a number of windows in Adelaide. I mean, he actually, he wouldn't be able to do it today. I mean, he really broke the rules. But um, that, that's one thing that stood out to me. But Jaguar had a cocktail party, and um, uh, we were invited. And, of course, Murray was there and James Hunt. And James Hunt arrived, and it was quite a, a plush cocktail party. Um, and Murray, uh, sorry, uh, James arrived without any socks. <laughs> um, looking very dishevelled, um, he, he was a big drinker, and um, to, in total contrast to Murray, who looked very elegant, and of course also, as I recall, was Princess Anne's husband, Peter something, yeah, Captain Captain, he was a captain, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he distinguished himself a few weeks before by driving a Range Rover up the steps of Victoria's Parliament. <laughs> 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 We received a few bit of publicity. Yeah, so he was there uh, as well. It was a really nice evening, but Hunt was all he wanted to do all night, and there were some very pretty girls there, and he wasn't interested in talking about racing or anything. He was just going from one pretty girl to the other. And, of course, they were all captivated by him. It was a funny night, I recall. 
<laughs> Great characters. I, I was talking to our friend and colleague, Will Hagen, where the modern Formula One driver is kept so pristine and not allowed to be involved in anything now. It is so much the manicured sort of approach, lovely word you did. There is one thing I must touch on, David. You mentioned at the beginning you tri uh, tripped around uh, England and Europe, I believe, in a 1910 scat yes. with your two daughters. Uh, um, I think they were both below 10 years old. There's some t sometime I would really love to interview them about their memories, but that's another story. Uh, that That in itself... We won't go into great detail now, but that that must have been a fantastic experience. Oh, well, I've just had some... Look, honestly, I'd always dreamed of driving a veteran car in England, and um, and I put the whole exercise together. It was fascinating. We we um, shipped the car to Holland, came across on the day ferry to Sheerness in Kent, and then we spent a fair bit of time going up into Scotland. The rally started in Edinburgh, but... Um, we met some fabulous people. I drove the oldest Rolls Royce in the world. I won't go into too much and spoil your interview, but we we um, and it opened a lot of doors for me, David. I met some very interesting people, and um, the scat had taken me seven years to restore. And um, and I won in the rally. We were in the Golden Jubilee Rally of the Veteran Car Club, which is the oldest motoring club in the world, formed in 1930. And so the Golden Jubilee 50 years was in 1980. And I won the best restoration against about 600 international competitors. And um, Prince Michael of Kent presented me with the trophy at the Guild Hall, which is a beautiful building in London. Um, as it, as it uh, indicates, the Guild Hall is, you know, it's got such beautiful gold leaf and what have you inside it. And um, it was a wonderful presentation, evening black tie. But to be presented by uh, be presented by Prince Michael is something I'll never forget. Uh, David, you you've had some wonderful experience. Even bringing out the Bluebird, I just you know the the world land speed record car, and uh, it was around the time when I was pushing uh, little matchbox toys under lounge chairs, and that it uh, it was lovely um, to think that we could be close to that sort of thing. Uh, I will chase you up at a later date uh, with. Uh, that uh, your trip, which we've, you've told me a little bit about, but uh, it'd be lovely to catch up. But for the moment, David uh, Berthon, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, David. Lovely to chat. And that is David Berthon, who is a motoring journalist, writer, and promoter, and other things, and a lover of old cars, and has done some fantastic restorations. We've talked about his 1913 roles just uh, not that long ago here on the program. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear more of him in the future. Overdrive is a radio and podcast program featuring road tests, interviews and features on motoring and transport. More information is available at drivenmedia.com.au and podcasts on Spotify or iTunes.